Our scripture reading today comes from Colossians chapters 3 and 4. The passage is printed on page 11 of your bulletin and will also be projected above. Chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Audrey. I thought because I'm going on sabbatical in two weeks that I'd wrap it up with some uncontroversial passage. Uh, uh, Seriously, though, um, this is a uh, really tough passage. Not only is it tough because of the content, it's tough because there is so much here. And so uh, I am very grateful to my wife, uh, to Susan, and to the women's shepherding team who provided some really helpful input and perspective uh, to me, even in approaching this passage. Um, However, there is a whole lot that I'm just not going to be able to say about this passage. I want to acknowledge that up front. Um, And like always, uh, I would be more than happy to talk more about anything in uh, this passage. Maybe questions you have that I don't answer, or things maybe that I do say that you want to discuss more. As always, uh, please let me know. Um, Okay, with that, kids, I want you to listen for these three things. Here they are. Minefield is the first thing. Uh, Secondly, an illustration about wanting to do the dishes. And then thirdly, I want you to listen for the phrase, buttering them up. So minefield, wanting to do the dishes and buttering them up. So with that, uh, let, me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Oh Lord, we, uh, we need you every single time uh, we come to your word. Uh, we can do nothing good apart uh, from you. Uh, and yet, Lord, we and I uh, feel that need acutely today. And so we pray that, that your spirit would attend to us, that your spirit would work with your word to enable us to ultimately behold the glory and the beauty of your son, Jesus, that we might know him more and that we might even see um, the way in which he is at work in us and in these most intimate of relationships. We pray this all in his name. Amen. I was talking with a friend a number of years ago uh, when he was serving uh, as a young adults pastor at a large, a really large church in the South. And so uh, I had just come from a wedding and so um, he asked me what I had preached at the wedding. I told him what it was and he just said, he's like, yeah, I am always looking for new material for wedding homilies. He's like, I, I have so many of them to do. I, I always need something new. So I asked him, because he, he'd been ordained for maybe five or six years at that point. And I said, how many weddings have you done? He said, well, the one that I have next week is gonna be number 65. What? 
uh, he was doing like 12 to 15 a year because this church was so large and there were so many people in that stage of life that were getting married. And so he's just constantly doing weddings. He said the real tough thing about it though is that everybody knew everybody and so they were all coming to one another's weddings. And so what that meant for him is that he couldn't use the same material. He couldn't repeat himself very much. And so I told him, I don't have that problem, one, because I don't do nearly that many weddings. And two, I'm pretty unashamed in that I say almost the same thing at pretty much every wedding. And that same thing that I say at almost every wedding is something that my RUF campus minister told me over 20 years ago. And it was this, marriage is always either ministry or manipulation. It is always either ministry or manipulation. And so while I, of course, preach different passages, I can almost promise you that sentence will get said in all of my wedding homilies. And the reason I say that is because it's a great summary of what this relationship between husband and wife is to look like. Here's the deal, though, something I've realized. This is actually true of all our relationships. Every relationship with someone is always either ministry or manipulation. You're either loving, serving, and seeking the good of that person, or on the other hand, you're manipulating that person. Sometimes it's in subtle ways, sometimes it's in overt ways, but it's always then towards these personal selfish ends. And so here's why I mention that. I think that's actually a pretty decent overall summary of what Paul's calling us to in this passage. Now he, he gives us some specific ways in which that ministry is to take shape depending on the, the, the unique role, or in some cases, roles that, that you inhabit. But in every case, it is always either ministry or manipulation. And so before we get into those specifics, I, I wanna state the obvious. This is a really hard passage. There is so much in here that, that needs to be qualified, and a lot of it needs to be put in context. And, and there's a sense in which this is sort of like walking through a minefield. And there are a number of, uh, of mines we need to avoid. Uh, there are two landmines, though, that I want to point out on the front end. One is this. It would be to apply this passage without taking into account the particular context and the culture into which it was written. And, and the reason I say that is because a lot of harm has been done with this passage by those who have failed to take into account that context. And so it has been used to justify or excuse inexcusable evil behavior by husbands, domineering and abusive behavior. It has been used to justify the kind of slavery that was practiced in this country for hundreds of years. And so let me state this clearly. Twisting God's word to justify sin, to uh, justify abuse, is something that the Lord takes very seriously and it's evil and inexcusable. The Bible never for one moment condones abuse. The Bible never for one moment condones the kind of evil chattel slavery that comes to mind from our own nation's history. So here's the point. We've gotta understand the context in order to hear Paul rightly. That's one landmine. Here's the other landmine though. And it would be to assume that because this is distant from us contextually and culturally, that therefore it has nothing to say to us. And the deal with that is that that's not true either. We believe that this is God's word, just like the whole of scripture. And because it's God's word, it is, in Paul's words to Timothy, profitable for us. It's profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so the other landmine would be just to write this passage off as something that has nothing to say to us now. Quick side note on this. I think this is a really good example of why we at Trinity have a habit of making our way through entire books of the Bible. Part of what that does for us, it means that we don't get to pick and choose the parts of the Bible we're comfortable with and then just avoid those that might make us uncomfortable. And so I heard a pastor say once that the way that we treat the parts of the Bible that we don't like actually shows whether we really believe the Bible to be God's word. And so those are the kind of preliminaries here. Here's what I want us to see today. The Lord Jesus both calls and enables us to minister to one another rather than manipulate one another. So four headings today. Here's the first. It's the ministry of all relationships, the ministry of all relationships. And you really see this uh, in the context of the letter as a whole. So if you remember where we've been, Paul has said that for every Christian, a definitive change has taken place in the life of a believer. When you put your faith in Christ, you are united to Jesus by faith. And he says that that relationship is so intimate and so close that now what is true of Christ is true of you if you've put your faith in him. So that Christ died to sin, therefore you have died to sin. Christ has been raised to new life, therefore you have been raised to new life. And so what most of chapter three is, is Paul calling Christians to stop living as who you were before you came to know Jesus, and now to start living as who you are now, by grace, in Christ. And what he says is that the place where that new life is gonna work itself out is in the context of relationships. So this is chapter three, verse 12. It's not printed in your bulletin. I'll read it to you though. He says this, this is to everybody. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love. I mention this right here because this is the call to all Christians in all relationships. In other words, you might be single, you might be married. You may be a husband, you may be a wife. You may have children and be a parent, or you may not have children. You may be an employer, or you might be an employee, and you might have specific callings in each of those relationships, but the way in which you carry out those specific callings will always be marked by compassion, by kindness, by humility, by meekness, and by patience. And so I think one of the most powerful places to, to see this is in Philippians 2, which is why I selected that as our New Testament lesson. Because what Paul says there in chapter 2, verse 3, is that all Christians are to count one another more significant than themselves. And that that, that attitude and posture of humility towards each other is actually supposed to mark every one of our relationships. It's an attitude that, that doesn't insist on getting your own way. So why is that so hard? Well, it's so hard because our default setting is to do everything we can to get our own way, right? And honestly, that's why so much of this passage is difficult for us. Uh, there was a movie that came out a long time ago. It's not that great of a movie. I wouldn't recommend it. But there's a great line in it. Uh, it's a movie called The Breakup. Uh, Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn. Uh, so they're in, this, uh, in the middle of an argument at one point. 
And she says to him, I want you to want to do the dishes. And he responds to her, why would I want to do the dishes? And as a friend of mine has said in many contexts since then, why would I want to do something I don't want to do? Which is really the question, right? Because that's what comes naturally to us. And so part of what we're saying here is that that, that, that kind of manipulation focuses on me and what I want. That's what I'm working towards. Ministry, on the other hand, though, focuses on the good of the other person. So one other thing to mention here before we get into the, uh, the specifics, it's this. If you notice throughout this passage, as Audrey is reading, uh, Paul refers to Jesus as a Lord seven different times in this passage. And so uh, part of what he's saying is that the lordship of Jesus makes its way down into the everyday, ordinary relationships of our lives. It has everything to do with the way that you and I relate to one another. And in all of these relationships, it is always going to be, that we are always called to minister to one another rather than manipulate one another. That is the call to all of us. He gets more specific here. He starts with marriage. So secondly, the ministry of marriage. So what does ministry in marriage look like? Well, he begins with these words to wives. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And we'll stop right there. Because uh, for most of us, maybe nearly all of us, you hear that word submit and there is something within us that, that recoils, maybe even cringes a little bit. Because what comes to mind, the way our ears hear that is that it immediately sounds patriarchal and it sounds chauvinistic. And to be honest, part of the reason it sounds that way is that this passage and those like them have been wrenched out of context and again have been used to justify inexcusable evil behavior. Here's what's interesting about this passage though. It would have been controversial in Paul's day as well. But it would have been controversial for different reasons. And, and, and here's the reason for it. Paul is using in this passage this well-known form in Greco-Roman culture called the household code. And so what, what a household code was, and this was all over the place, it was a code that would set out the relationships between a husband and wife, the relationships between parents and children, and then the relationship between masters and slaves. Here's the thing, though. In the household codes in, in Paul's day, everything in those household, co household codes would have been ordered to make the husband and patriarch comfortable. It would have been to serve him. And the wives, the children, the servants would not have even been addressed in those household codes because they were not considered to have the dignity to be addressed. And so for Paul to say and write what he's saying would have been controversial in that day because not only is he addressing women and children and servants, He's addressing them first. And in this particular context, in verses 18 and 19, he is calling husbands here not to a place where they are doing whatever they want in order to get what they want, to control or use their wives, but instead he's calling them to this radical other-centered love, this radical other-centered service that we know from the parallel passage in Ephesians 5 is actually to be patterned after Jesus himself. So Paul's using this, this uh, common cultural form of the day, but because of our new life in Jesus, because of the coming of Christ, he's actually subverting it at the same time. So here's the question then. What does Paul mean 
in this context, when he talks about, when he calls wives to submit to their husbands, let me start with what he does not mean. It does not mean that all women are to submit to all men as though there was some sort of hierarchy between the sexes. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. What what, what Paul is calling for here is for a wife to live in submission to her husband in this very particular calling of marriage. This, This relationship that's bound by a covenantal commitment that reflects the relationship of Jesus to the church. Similarly, it it does not mean that the wife is in any way of lesser value or dignity. Every single human being is created in the image of God. Men and women bear that image, that dignity, and that glory equally. Men and women are equally gifted to serve. So that's not what he's getting at here. Submission does uh, does not mean, as well, giving unqualified obedience. See, in the original culture, in Greco-Roman culture, wives were expected to obey their husbands in that way. And so it's really significant here that Paul talks about obedience in terms of the father or the uh, children-parent uh, relationship as well as in the master-servant relationship. He does not use the word obey in reference to wives. So this doesn't mean that a wife would never question or disagree with her husband. That's not what Paul's getting at here. Finally, you need to hear hear this very clearly. It never, ever means that a wife should give herself to any kind of abuse by her husband. And wives, if you are in an abusive relationship right now, we want you to tell us that. Please tell us that. Tell me, tell Andy, tell one of our elders, tell Susan, tell one of our women shepherding team members so that we can help. Because this is not at all, ever, what Paul intends in this passage. So then the question is, what does Paul mean positively if that's not what he means? Well, this is a slightly technical point. I think it's worth making, though. This verb, submit, in this, as it's used here, is in the middle voice rather, rather than in the active voice. That might mean nothing to you, but here's why I, I mention it. Because part of what that means, then, is that submission is something that is to be given voluntarily by the wife. And it's not something to be demanded by the husband. And so biblical submission, in every instance, upholds the dignity of the one submitting every single time. Because it's a gift that is freely given. This same word is used to describe Jesus' subjection to the Father in 1 Corinthians 15. And so here's how one commentator defines submission that I think is really helpful. He says this, submission suggests a voluntary willingness to recognize and put oneself under the leadership of another. And if you think to that parallel passage in Ephesians 5 where Paul talks more about this, it it, it means something similar to respect. And the reason given there in in Ephesians 5 is is similar to what Paul says in Colossians. He says in Colossians that it's fitting in the Lord. In Ephesians 5, verse 23, though, he says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. So here's what he's saying. The wife's submission to her husband is part of this bigger picture of the relationship of the church to Jesus. And remember, Jesus' leadership looked like his laying down his life for his bride. 
And so what Paul has in mind here is of a wife voluntarily giving herself to the leadership of a husband who is striving to love her in the most self-giving, sacrificial way possible. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. And so do you hear the way that 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 changes the context of the call? So that when you know that a person has, has your best interest at heart, and is willing to lay down his very life for you, then that is a person that you can follow. One final word to to mention here. This is gonna look very different in different marriages. Uh, A friend of mine uh, pointed out that what Paul gives here is something much closer to a principle than it is a prescription. And, And what he meant by that is that Paul could have gone into great detail as to what this should look like. He doesn't, and that's intentional. And so there are going to be all sorts of factors that are going to determine what this looks like in particular marriages, and we want to extend grace in that. So a wife ministers to her husband in supporting him, in encouraging him, in challenging him, and God in his grace can make that husband look more like Jesus through the ministry of his wife. That's the ministry of wives. So then what does the ministry of husbands look like? Verse 19, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And again, uh, this would have been totally countercultural because in the ancient world, a husband would never have been called to love his wife. And yet, the specific way that Paul says husbands are to live out their new life in Christ in the context of marriage is to love their wives. And I think it's, it's important, too, to notice that this is the kind of love that can be commanded. In other words, it's not just a mere feeling he's talking about. It is a feeling that's going to come. But what he's talking here is an act of will. And from what Paul has said in Ephesians 5 in this parallel passage, the model of this love is Jesus himself. It is the self-giving, sacrificial love put on display by Christ himself. Husbands, that is your call. That is what it looks like to minister to your wife. Paul also calls, uh, tells us what the manipulation of a husband might look like. And he says, it looks like being harsh with your wife. And if you think about this, you can see how this would be a particular temptation of husbands, to, and it would be to use their role in a selfish, domineering way. And what Paul says is that that is not the way of Christ. That is not what he is talking about here. A husband is to love and serve his wife. He is to fully give himself for her and to her good. And so uh, here's how uh, two authors uh, describe this, Dan Allender and Trimper Longman. They say this, while it is true that the husband is the head of the wife, he is the one who is ultimately responsible to die on behalf of his wife first. To be the head is to lead by sacrificing first for those we are called to serve. That is the ministry of marriage. So thirdly then, Paul moves into the ministry of parents and children. The ministry of parents and children. And he starts with children in verse 20. He says, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. So this is uh, uh, obviously different from what he's just said in marriage. There are some commonalities, but some significant differences here. The way the Lord has provided for children to be loved, for children to be cared for, for children to be protected, is through this loving authority of their parents. And so again, in this parallel passage in Ephesians 5, Paul points to the fifth commandment 
and the promise that's attached to it. He says this. He says, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So kids, what you might not know and what you might not realize is that the way that you can minister to your parents is actually to obey them. Now, does that mean that they are gonna get it right 100% of the time? Absolutely not, (laughs) right? But it does mean that one of the ways that God has set up the family is for you to experience the love and the care of the Lord through your parents. That's actually what he intends. And that's part of why the Lord calls you to obey them. He says it's because it is for your good. He gives another even more significant reason. He He says that when you do this, it is pleasing to the Lord himself. Okay, so that's what ministry might look like. What would manipulation look like for children? Well, it could look like obeying in some ways, but only insofar as it makes your parents do something you want them to do, right? You know exactly what this could look like. As an example, I might obey my parents one week in all the ways I can, and I mean really lay it on thick, right? Like really butter them up, and it's not because I'm seeking to please the Lord, nor is it because I'm trying to honor them in any way. It's because I know that if I do that, they are much more likely to say yes to letting me hang out with my friends on Friday night, right? And so that would be an example of what manipulation might look like. That's not what Paul's calling you to. He's talking here about this obedience from the heart that actually trusts the Lord. Paul then moves into specific words to fathers. He says, verse 21, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Plenty that he could say to mothers here, he chooses to speak to fathers specifically, dads. Do you know how important your unique role is in the lives of your children? Do you know that, that, that your voice carries uniquely significant weight in their lives? And it carries weight not only in the words that you say, but, but in the tone that you use. And so what Paul warns us about here is that there is a way of using that unique role to provoke our children to anger and to ultimately discourage them. And that's what manipulation would look like in this relationship. And and, and we know how this goes. You are tired, you are worn down, and you are frustrated that once again, they have made that same bad decision, right? And maybe the consequences of that decision keep getting ratcheted up. And so the way that you respond in that moment is to bring the hammer down. And in that moment, you become overbearing, you become controlling, and you start using shame as a tool. And so it's, it's not at all because any of that's good for them. It's because you're tired of them messing up. And what Paul says is that that will crush our children. So Tim Challies has a great quote. This is in your bulletin that I think this is to all parents. I think it's particularly applicable to fathers. Remember that your children are sinners who are beset by the fierce enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Be gentle with them and have pity for them. Don't be yet another enemy to them. And by the way, just to be clear, this does not at all mean don't discipline them. Absolutely discipline them. It would be unloving not to discipline our children, but... The call here is to do so in a way that reflects your Father in heaven. 
And so what ministry looks like from a father to a child is a gentle, loving care. It's discipline and encouragement to them. It looks like reflecting the father's love for you. That's the ministry of parents and children. Fourthly and finally, the ministry of the workplace. So once again, I want to press pause here as we look at verses uh, 322 through 41. Because of all of the relationships in this household code, this one is different. And here's the reason for it. This is the one, this relationship between master and slave, that is not ordained by God. Marriage and family are these institutions that are good things that God has, has, uh, has given to us uh, in this world as these permanent institutions until, uh, the, until uh, Jesus returns. Uh, the kind of slavery, though, in the Greek and Roman world was not one of those things. It's important to say that the conditions of slavery in the Greco-Roman world were not nearly as bad as they were in the American South. However, that is the case. Bond servants in the Greco-Roman world received compensation. Many describe the way servanthood was set up in the Greco-Roman world as something closer to like indentured servanthood where a a servant could earn their way out of debt and then in many cases would remain a part of the household and continue to work as an employee for that household into the future. However, it was still slavery. It was still slavery. And what we need to notice is that Paul never condones it. He doesn't condone it in this passage, nor does he condone it in any other passage. What he's doing here is he's addressing these new believers who find themselves in this particular cultural context. In fact, many think that the Colossian church actually had a a pretty high number of slaves present. Uh, Onesimus, who's mentioned in Philemon, could have been the one who actually carried this letter to the church in Colossae. And so what Paul is doing in this letter is he's actually undermining this institution of slavery. And you gotta remember that this letter was being read to the public assembly where everybody was there together. Wives and husbands, parents and children, masters and slaves standing aside, uh, beside one another as they hear these words spoken. And what Paul does is he, the, the way in which he, he undercuts or undermines this institution is primarily by framing all of this under the lordship of Jesus. And so what he says is that both bond servants and masters all have one true master. And that because that's true, it radically changes the way that they're going to interact. So bond servants, he says, are called to do their work sincerely, to do it fearing the Lord, he says. He goes on to say in verse 24 that ultimately, you are serving the Lord Christ. Turns then to speak to masters, and he says, masters, you are called to treat your servants justly and fairly, knowing that, they, that you also have a master in heaven. So uh, commentators, though, point out that, that while there's some unique things about this, there's also some legitimate application here to be made to a, an authority relationship, something like the workplace. And so let me just mention a couple of things very briefly here in terms of application that, in that regard. Every one of us has the opportunity as an employee to, in your job, no matter what it is, to work as unto the Lord. To know that the everyday labor that you engage in is actually something that you are doing for the Lord. And so the question to, to consider is, how might my, the, the way that I approach my job, think about my job, do my job, change if I really believe that to be true? That this was an, ap, uh, an opportunity to actually uh, give glory to the Lord. 
It could be also, though, that, that you find yourself in the position of an employer. So uh, what would the ministry of an employer look like? Well, the ministry Paul calls you to is treating your employees justly and fairly. And there are a hundred different ways that we could apply this. One, though, is this. It would be paying them a fair wage, both men and women. It means not exploiting your workers by expecting them to put in crazy number of hours that are gonna do ultimate harm to them and, and to their families if they have them. And so notice as well that the motive that you have as an employer is your master in heaven. And here's the deal. You know the way that your master treats you. And so there's a sense in which Paul is saying, now go and do likewise. So here's the big point. The point is that we get to enjoy and work out our new life in Christ in all of our relationships. And in all of those relationships, our interaction is always going to be either ministry or manipulation. That was a lot, <laughs> right? Um, this is a lot of content for one. Um, but I know too, uh, this is a whole lot because none of this is easy. Relationships are a tremendous gift of the Lord, and they're really hard. Marriage is a wonderful gift from the Lord, and it's really hard. Kids, your parents are a gift to you, and obeying them is really hard. Parenting is a gift, and it is so hard. Work is a gift from the Lord, and yet our jobs are so difficult. And it would be so easy to just read the passage that we read today in isolation and to feel at least discouraged by this, it could be that you feel crushed by it. And it could be the case uh, that you feel that way because your marriage is a mess right now and it is so, so hard. It could be that, that it feels like your, ch your children are going off the rails and so all of this feels out of reach to you. Or it could be that you are in a job right now that is killing you and you feel trapped and it feels like there is no way out. What does the Lord Jesus say to you in that place? He says a couple things to you. One is this. He says that you need to remember what he has done for you and that he is the one in whom all of your trespasses have been forgiven. All of your failures in all of these relationships, every single one of these, he says in chapter two, has been nailed to the cross. Your debt has been canceled by the work of your savior on your behalf. That's one thing you've got to keep in mind. Here's the second. It's that you have now also been raised with him. You have a new identity in Jesus. And not only do you have a new identity in him, you have a new power at work in you. What Paul says in Ephesians 1 is that the very same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that is now at work in you by the Holy Spirit. And so part of what that means is that the Lord has begun a good work in you now and he will be faithful to complete it. You can read these words not as something that, 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 that is discouraging or crushing to you, but is in, is in some sense a promise to you. And what I mean by that is that this is what Jesus, by his grace, is going to bring about in all of these relationships. Turn to him. He is the one who can bring this about. This is the new life that he offers in and through him. You pray for us. Father, these uh, are hard words for us. 
And there's so much that we could say about this passage. And Lord, we look to you as the one who has given us this word for our good and for your glory. And so we pray, Lord, that you by your spirit would sink uh, that which is true deeply into our hearts. And Lord, I pray that anything that I have spoken today that is not in accord with your word would immediately be forgotten. And that uh, we would hear ultimately from you. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that is ours in and through Jesus and the new life that we have in him. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.